From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Kendall Seesmeyer. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm your host. It's a precarious time for American democracy. This year, the Supreme Court term resulted in a number of concerning opinions that roll back civil rights and civil liberties across many facets of American life. Most notably, the decision in the Dobbs case that overturned the constitutional right to an abortion. At the same time, the congressional hearings around the violent attack on the Capitol on January 6, 2021, have revealed a dangerous and unabashed attempt to subvert our electoral system. When people don't have trust in their government or its institutions, when our electoral system is riddled with fractures, it can be hard to mount meaningful change. One of our most powerful mechanisms of change is voting. So we're at an impasse, and we're going to acknowledge that today and explore ways to surmount the challenges ahead of us. Joining us to discuss is the ACLU's executive director, Anthony Romero. Anthony has been at the helm of the organization since 2001 and has seen our work through a number of inflection points. He knows, better than most, that progress is possible even after major setbacks. Anthony, welcome back to Liberty. Hi, Kendall. Yeah, great to be back. Thank you for having me. So we just celebrated the 4th of July at a time when many of us feel incredibly disheartened by our country. But I want to start with a temperature check from you. Yeah. You know, a lot has happened in the last few weeks. How are you feeling? Well, um, I have to be an optimist, right? It's kind of like the first thing in my job description. Uh, A clear-eyed, pragmatic, feet-on-the-ground optimist. And I think, you know, as as we reflect on Independence Day, which I know... You know, it's we're not all free in the way that we'd like to be. Independence Day is not uh, without its both promises and and shortcomings, right? We, you know, the the what we celebrate was even from the beginning was an incomplete uh, and you know half-hearted commitment to freedom. It wasn't the freedom of slaves. wasn't the freedom of women. Certainly, the liberation of gay and LGBT people came later. But something about these core ideals about freedom and justice and equality under the law still still moves my soul, still quickens my pulse. And I'll be damned if I'm going to give up what I think are core values that have animated most of my life and certainly the life of this organization for 102 years. Um, Even with these real setbacks, you know, the Supreme Court decision in Dobbs, the, there are so many other decisions that the courts come up with recently on guns, on school prayer, on, on religious funding for schools. All of it, I think, has gone the wrong direction for me. Um, but I think it's important to kind of reflect on what I do. I mean, to kind of give me hope is when I think about what the organization was like, Kendall, way back, you know, women didn't have the right to vote when we were founded. You know, blacks were, were second class citizens by, by rule of law. And yet they believed that even in the kind of what they confronted was a complete disenfranchisement of women, of black people, kind of terrorization of, of the black community. They, they believe that they, they would build a better day. And so we've got to take a page out of their 
playbook and say, wow, if they had the, the determination, the grit, the resilience, the optimism to, you know, kick it into gear and get stuff done, then I think we need to kind of channel some of that, even as we reflect on that what just happened over the last several weeks, especially in the Dobbs decision, was cataclysmic, right? We cannot sugarcoat it. We cannot minimize it. Um, a, a right that women and other people have enjoyed for 50 years, the right to determine what to do with one's body and one's life. It's about the core ability to decide who you are and what you do and how you live. And that's been true for generations of women and other folks who've gotten pregnant to be able to determine when and if to have a child, essential to uh, autonomy, to agency, to liberty, to freedom. And they took it away because they could, because they could. Right. Yeah. And and it was very clear that it was because they could. Nothing in the law had changed uh, prior to the lead up to that decision. And that was obviously referenced in the dissent opinion. Most of the polling will show you that most of Americans support a right to an abortion, right? Some say as many as 85% of, uh, of Americans support abortion rights. So when the Supreme Court is so fundamentally out of step with the American public, I've got to believe that gives us an opportunity to get busy and get to work. And the way forward is not through the Supreme Court. Many of these justices have been working their whole lives to, to get uh, Roe versus Wade overturned. So they're not about to have a soul on the road to Damascus conversion moment. But, um, but I think we've got to get busy in the, in the political arena. And there's work for us to do in the courts that we're, we're doing that as well. Mm-hmm. So I, I do want to, before we touch on the political work and and how we can get busy there, I do want to just touch on what we have been doing in the immediate aftermath of the Dobbs decision. And, you know, I think it's important to say that we've wasted no time in in using the courts even to their fullest extent. I was wondering if you could, in brief, just t- talk about how we're mobilizing from a litigation perspective to limit harm and fight back. We're the only advocacy group with boots on the ground in every state. So in this respect, the battle around reproductive rights and abortion rights you know, is, is, is what we're built for, right? When these battles now, when the Supreme Court basically got out of the business of protecting a fundamental right to an abortion and said the states can decide and they can apply a, a rational basis uh, test to any of the laws um, that they enact, which means the lowest bar that uh, that the states uh, have to be scrutinized by, that there's been a rush to implement um, you know, new statutes. Some of them have been in place. I think 13 of them have been in place from before. These right. trigger ban laws were, yeah, they yeah. were in place so that the minute Roe versus Wade would uh, be repealed, the trigger ban laws would go would jump into effect, if you will. That's why they're called trigger bans. So we've been we've been hard at work um, so far, by my count, and I may have missed a one or two, but um, we have filed in Kentucky, in Texas, Florida, and I think there's a, a Ohio. out of Ohio, Arizona, 
As I, I just re- saw West Virginia this morning. West Virginia. Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> it just came on the, over the wire this morning. I mean, partly what we're doing is we're looking at every single one of these statutes, the ones that were in there uh, before the Dobbs decision and the ones that are being enacted afterwards. And we're trying to throw every credible legal argument we can uh, against these new restrictions on abortions, these new bans. Uh, and sometimes in their zeal, the state legislators are cutting corners and, you know, they're cutting procedural corners. They're enacting laws that conflict with other parts of their uh, statutes. Um, they're enacting laws that make uh, conflict with the holdings of state Supreme Court uh, um, rulings. So we're throwing every single argument we can at it and hope to keep the clinics open for as long as we possibly can, uh, realizing that it's an uphill battle. But every day that we keep the clinics open is another day that women in that area and that jurisdiction get access to abortion services. So that's a win. Yeah, but I, I want to talk about something else that's been in the news, the January 6th congressional hearings that in many ways have been the backdrop of the Supreme Court term. It's worth mentioning that at the time of the violence at the Capitol in January of 2021, our board of directors voted to support the impeachment of President Trump for his role in election subversion. The second impeachment against Trump, only the third time in our entire history. Yeah, which is, I think, something we take really seriously as a yeah, nonpartisan definitely. organization. You don't, you don't easily set aside the will of the people that's been manifested through a national vote. Uh, and yet we took the second vote on impeaching President Trump because of the events around January 6th. And as these hearings have played out, the discussion at large has been over the concern of the erosion of faith in our systems and particularly in our electoral process. How is this a threat, this lack of faith in institutions or in our government or in the electoral process specifically? How is that a threat to our work at the ACLU? It guts everything that we work on, everything that we stand on. It's just the belief in the integrity of the legal process. Even when we know we're going to lose cases, even when we know that sometimes we we lose cases that we we think we should win, there's a fundamental belief in kind of the balls and strikes that you call in the game of of litigation, of, of, of the judicial branch. You know, when you begin to question the integrity of the voting system and the system by which you tally up or recognize these votes. I mean, you really are gutting the, 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 the basic foundation of democratic institutions and norms upon which all of society rests. I mean, it's not just the work of the ACLU. It's the idea that, you know, that, uh, that all of society, all of commerce, all of kind of the human existence about the ability to live one's life in a, in a, in a, in a free and open democracy is challenged when you begin to gut the, the the very norms and values and institutions that uphold that democracy. And I think that's part of what is the, the meta story, if you will, on the January 6 hearings, that, that what we had in leadership at the time and the president and then in the people around him and Mark Meadows and, and uh, Rudolf Giuliani and others who enabled uh, a wholesale uh, 
uh, attack on these institutions. Um, and it wasn't partisan. It was, it was, it was, it was almost anarchistic. Um, there are, there are, there are great Republicans that I vehemently disagree with who are institutionalists, who believe in the institutions of our government. At some point, the history books, the kind of the leaders that come out of this, these parties, both on the left and the right, are going to have to really reckon with what were the effects of it. I mean, there are some great leaders within the Republican Party who've, had, who've shown real courage. I mean, Liz Cheney, I don't agree with her in a lot of things, but I give her credit for being deeply engaged on the January 6th hearing and, and, and really standing up to the ire of her own party. Really important to keep the ability for leaders within the Republican Party to lead in ways that have integrity, that build institutions, that build norms. Um, and that's important for the ACLU because, you know, the day we become the civil liberties wing of the Democratic Party is the day we become irrelevant. So we've got to work with Democrats. We've got to work with Republicans. We've got to fight them both. And part of what's made our job so incredibly more difficult over the last several years is this kind of this gridlock. And so I think the January 6th hearings is just a kind of, a, it, it's, it's almost like a diagnostic test that when you go to your doctor's office and they run, you know, your blood levels and they say, you know, high potassium and high blood pressure and you got to work on this and this is where you're not healthy and you got to cut down on some of the fatty foods and everything. It, it, for me, it felt like it was that. It was really kind of a checkup uh, for democracy about what needs to change and kind of, a, kind of a doubling down of belief in a commitment to democratic institutions and norms and rules that apply to both parties, regardless of who's in power, is really an essential part of how this functions and how we get it back on track. But that may be a while. And I think in a lot of ways, it's hurt both sides, so to speak, whether that, you know, be Republicans, because if they believe this claim that they think the election was stolen, they don't believe that we have free and fair elections, right? And then their leaders go on to uh, try to pass anti-democratic laws in different states in order to, uh, you know, adjust for these false claims. Uh, And then we, on the other side, we have a bunch of people who are impacted because they'll be in, disenfranchised by those laws, um, which which really just all over hurts this the system for everyone, which is why we're so concerned about it. But I think what's changed in the last several years, especially with the Trump era, has been almost a a wholesale resignation to the fact that power and might is right. And it's not just not just what what's right is right. It's what it's if you're powerful, you're right. And that I think has a massive impact, not just on our work, as I said, but also on all aspects of American life. Because if you know, if you do it because you can, right? Like the Supreme Court repealed Roe because it could, because they could, yeah. Um, and and what, what does that say about the way in which? You know, corporations run. What does it say about powerful individuals? So that's why I think it's really an existential crisis, as you say. It's all as a backdrop. But I think in that we just have to keep we keep working and keep 
we don't give up on our values, um, even when they're unpopular, even when they're kind of under under siege or under assault. We we fight for what's right because it's right, and and I think ultimately you have to believe in the the ability that we will prevail because um, because the other the other alternative, the failure, is not the option. It's not an option for us. Yeah, and and you know to get back to the moment that we're living in, and again, the post-war world, you wrote an op-ed for The Nation. And this is the line that I loved the most that I want to ask you about. You say that while it may sound strange coming from the lawyer who heads the ACLU, the real path forward is not through the courts. We must turn to the political process and increase pressure on elected officials, especially at the state and local level. How are you thinking about this kind of forward motion that we need to have uh, coming into the midterms, coming out of this Supreme Court term, when we are still facing a lot of animosity uh, in in our election system. I think it's all about empowering people with information with encouragement, with agency, with allies to take action on their own behalf. One of the things that we learned that was an experiment for us that we're now rebooting, it was this effort around people power, right? We, we created this program as online platform for offline activism during the Trump administration. You know, we had literally, you know, our membership quintupled in the years of the Trump presidency. And people said, okay, I gave you money, now put me to work. So we came up with people power and we put people to work to enact sanctuary city laws that, that protected immigrants' rights from, you know, Trump and from Jeff Sessions. We put people to work to collect signatures for ballot referenda. And we, we trained people so they could bird dog presidential candidates, especially the Democrats. That's when one of our people power activists um, was able to get candidate Biden on the record to repeal the Hyde Amendment, the prohibition on, on funding for abortion services at the state level, right? And she just asked a very direct question, didn't let him get off the hook, taped it. He said, yeah, I'll repeal the Hyde Amendment. She sent it to us. We blasted it out. The Biden, the Biden campaign called us and said, oh, we're going to have to walk that back. I'm like, okay, <laughs> walk it back at your peril. Yeah, They walked it back. And then a day later, they had to recommit to repealing the Hyde Amendment. Now, I think people power and the kind of the giving people tools and training and allyship and agency and a bullhorn is something that we're really kind of having to kind of double down on. But that's what we've got to increasingly do around abortion rights, that people want to be engaged. They want to know, you know, how to ask candidates at all levels, especially at the state and local level of all of this. So now when they are in the uncomfortable situation, like, oh, I'm anti-abortion. But then they have literally thousands of women and other persons who are being denied access to services, who are dying, who are having unwanted pregnancies. Oh my God, we got to put them on the spot, right? We got to make sure now what do you do? Uh, give me an answer, give me a solution. 
Uh, so no place to run, no place to hide. And that includes Democrats, right? That includes some Democrats because some, Demo- Absolutely. some Democrats have also been mumbling their way on abortion. Yeah. And just like the NRA made, made the, the kind of the Second Amendment a litmus test for uh, leaders on the right, we've got to make sure that the abortion issue is, you know, it's going to be our litmus test. And when there's a bit of hypocrisy, we need to ask them, to, okay, now what? Susan Collins, for instance, right? Let me just go off one of my favorite kind of hobby horse at the moment. It's just, just like she has issued these statements about how she's shocked, shocked that Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh lied. lied yes. Lied to her while giving her private reassurances that they would uphold Roe versus Wade. And now she's shocked that they voted for the repeal of Roe. Well, okay. Sorry that you were shocked. Um, but she needs to now get behind pro-choice candidates, right? Like in a big way, in the Republican Party and in the Democratic Party. This is a moment where we need to hold people feet to the leaders' feet to the fire. And I think it's I think it's really important that we just stay on it like water on stone. Um, and that's what we'll do. I mean, ultimately, I think the 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 the, the path forward will be through uh, the states and through the polling booths. And I think the outcry, um, and, I, and I think lamentably, some of the chaos and carnage and the struggle, especially on, on women of color and low-income women and poor people who are not accessing abortion services, is going to be too much for anyone of conscience to accept and say, wait a minute, this is not what we bargained for. This is not what we want. And then hopefully that will kind of expedite kind of a rethinking, a rebooting of the way forward. That's what I'm hoping it does. So it doesn't turn into a multi-decade battle to restore abortion rights. When people finally say, oh, my God, look at all what's happening around here. We can't let this happen for a day longer. Let's fix this now. I'm hoping that will kind of speed up the recovery process, if you will, for abortion rights. Yeah, I, I also hope that it doesn't take three decades because that will um, entirely bypass my generation. Uh, yeah, that's why we're counting on your generation. Yeah. That's why we're counting. We got to get them elected. That's why the most, the most angry get them people elected. I've encountered yeah. are the older women. The oh, older women. That have a memory, kind of a collective with, memory. Who right? just say, I remember what this was like before Roe. Yeah. And I've heard stories and I know people who've, who, who told me individual stories of, of struggle and we can never become callous or, uh, or immune to the impact of these stories because that is real human suffering that is being imposed on, on millions of women and, and other p- persons who are pregnant. I think one thing that I, I wonder if it will actually kind of change anything is our access to social media because now we can tell our own stories. And I know that I've been seeing stories already um, all over TikTok. Like the, the, the people on TikTok are, are definitely not okay right now. And um, I wonder if that, that level of, you know, we're not relying on any, uh, any system other than our own access to to the internet and our cell phone and um, and these social media applications, which can be precarious, but uh, give us the the freedom of expression to share these stories. Um, I want to pick up on one other thing that you mentioned, and I think it's really important to note that 
you know, black and brown people uh, have been most impacted intimately by uh, abortion, anti-abortion legislation, by uh, anti-democratic legislation uh, throughout the entire history of our country and still today. And I think one thing that strikes me as an important to talk about uh, with you is our work on our systemic equality campaign, because I do see, you know, that's a legislative effort that we've been working on for uh, like a year and a half now, I think it has been. Um, and, and I think that's, there's a big part of that that can also help restore faith in these institutions um, and actually build them in a way that they've never been built before. So could you tell us a little bit about that work? Sure, yeah. sure, sure, Kendall. So our systemic equality agenda grew out of the, the summer following the murder of George Floyd when the ACLU said, okay, we've been committed to racial justice from our inception, but we need to do more and double down. And what would that look like? And what we came up with was a couple of things. Number one is we decided to um, put our 12 Southern offices on a real aggressive uh, round of growth hormones, if you will. We were going to kind of build them better, faster, stronger, right? You know, in the 12 Southern offices of the ACLU, we had about 160 staff when we first started about a year, two years ago. And we're going to pump, I think, close to $50 million into those 12 Southern offices and grow the staff. So they can deal with all of the issues that are being flung at them. Everything from, you know, the, 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 the attack on abortion rights, the attack on voting rights, the attack on trans rights, the attack on redistricting. Then we're also thinking about from a policy agenda, well, what are some of the other ways we can push new ways of thinking and new approaches for leveling the playing field? Especially as it appears the Supreme Court is trying to, is trying to withdraw from a commitment to civil rights and racial justice. You know, they have the affirmative action case uh, that's before the court next term, which I think many people expect the Supreme Court to repeal um, affirmative action in those in that litigation. The court uh, this week, you know, I think um, in, a, in a troubling case in Louisiana, decided to strike down an effort to enact more kind of a, a map that would empower black voters in Louisiana. So we see the court is pulling back on racial justice. So what more can we do to push forward on racial justice? And so we're looking at um, an expansive agenda and trying to build down on it, um, uh, building on the scholarship and the leadership of our ACLU president, Deborah Archer. We're looking at place-based discrimination, um, you know, discrimination in, in transportation, in zoning, in infrastructure. There's a, a focus on the leveling the playing field around economic issues, right? Um, student kind of loan the, debt. The student loan debt. People say, why is student loan debt kind of a racial justice issue? Well, look at the numbers of people who, who have higher student loan debt and an inability to pay it back. And you can quickly see that, it, it, you know, it, it doesn't sound like a racial justice issue, but when you look at the numbers and crunch the data, it, it definitely um, has kind of a, a significant racial justice piece. Uh, we're looking at postal banking. And so we're trying to think expansively, and especially it's important for the ACLU to kind of think 
boldly and to kind of try things that uh, we've not tried before. Even as we keep on the important work we've always done around, you know, racial discrimination in voting and racial discrimination in 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 education, we'll continue that important work. But I think it's important that we double down on it. Yeah, and and to me, it's also a way of rebuilding faith and trust in the, our government systems at a very local level um, in people's like everyday lives and what they're able to access uh, through government services, whether that's infrastructure like broadband or. Uh, you know, student loan, like getting rid of their student loan debt. Uh, I want to turn and wrap up this conversation with, you know, what what we're doing moving forward. One of the reasons the ACLU is poised to be effective in in this time is our ability to not just look at this issue as a reproductive freedom issue, but as a privacy issue, as a uh, racial justice issue as a LGBTQ plus issue. So I, I would love to talk about that. And then also in tandem, I'd also love to talk about our work in this kind of like new federalism view that we have where we're going to go back to the state and local level. We're working on ballot measures and we're we're mobilizing states to to do this kind of work. So what can you tell us about this this vision? That's great. So first off, I mean, I think as we map out the path forward uh, after Dobbs, uh, there are a couple of things. Is that the challenges for abortion rights are not limited to abortion rights, for instance, Kendall. Some of the states are trying to prohibit abortion services and some of the states will uh, uh, allow abortion services. Well, there's a whole series of freedom of speech issues that are implicated, right? What if you're running an ad for an abortion clinic in Illinois that is not allowed in the state of Missouri, right? Can you regulate that, uh, that ad? Um, you know, we have very protective laws around freedom of speech, including with the Supreme Court and with a lot of conservatives and Republicans. So it's going to be an inner, you know, the, the interplay between abortion rights and First Amendment rights is going to be key. Similarly, around the right to travel, the surveillance issues, like how are they going to know whether or not I went across the the state line from Missouri to Illinois to get an abortion or to uh, uh, or to buy some other products or services or people who are using cell phone applications to track their cycles or search on Google for resources accessing uh, mail-order abortion pills, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And that's why I think in many respects the ACLU is, you know, we're called to, we're called to serve because we're we're the only real organization with expertise on surveillance, on criminal law, on immigration, on... um, uh, on any of these other interfaces along the First Amendment that really has an impact on abortion rights. So we're going to have to think through how this um, issue plays out in, in all of our issues and all of our uh, docket areas. The second pivot that you describe is, you know, with, with lawyers in every state, um, there's a real opportunity for us to develop a more fulsome 
and long-range plan on state Supreme Court litigation. I think if we can begin to develop kind of a long-range state Supreme Court plan for all of our 50 state offices, that would be amazing. What's also true is that mo- as a lot of state court, uh, Supreme Court judges are elected. Oh my God, they're elected. So you can actually educate voters, right? You know how hard it is to find information on state Supreme Court judges who are candidates? But if we begin to provide real information to ACLU members and constituents who are interested, it's like, this is, these are some of the issues. This is some of the background of your candidates for the state Supreme Court. And vote all the way down the ticket. Don't just stop at president or Congress or Senate and governor or attorney general. Go all the way down to the bottom of the ballot. And vote for state Supreme Court judges who have the right backgrounds and the right approaches and the right values, then I think we can begin to seed kind of a different type of dynamic and have um, more fertile soil for some of the advocacy we want to do in state Supreme Courts. Thank you so much, Anthony, for joining us and for walking us through how you envision the ACLU working in this moment and in our future moments and and how we can all be be a part of that. We really appreciate your time. Glad to be here with you, Kendall. And the most important thing is that we have to fight any cynicism and any fatalism. There's a colleague of mine, Louise Melling, who says, the only thing that's harder than fighting is stopping. And I think the future generations of people who rely upon us for their rights and liberties, who count on us, people we will never have the privilege of meeting, We've got to keep them in our mind's eye and we've got to channel the resilience. We've got to huddle. We've got to support one another. We've got to, then we've got to hit the field and, and keep pushing because the, the work is just too important. And what, you know, what we're fighting for matters. Um, and when you're right and righteous, you don't give up. You just keep going. Thank you for those uh, words of encouragement. I know that I think I know that we all need them, and I know I sure do. Thanks so much for listening. We have a long fight ahead of us, but the ACLU was made for moments like this. To donate to support our fight against the attack on reproductive autonomy and all the attacks that follow, please visit aclu.org slash keepfighting. That's aclu.org slash keepfighting. To get involved in our people power effort to protect abortion access, please visit aclu.org slash abortion dash pledge. That's aclu.org slash abortion dash pledge. These links will be in the description box as well. Thank you so much for stepping up and working together with us. Until next week, stay strong.